This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Garmin is going to give you cash for your old navigators. And ForeFlight releases a recap to document past flights. We've got an update on the balloon lawsuit out of Frederick. And there's been an increase in anonymous safety reports, and that's a good thing. Finally, a new upgrade from Cirrus. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk for 2024? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest, I guess this is kind of our Frederick-themed episode because our guest is Brian Voltaggio, a Frederick native. Yep. If you're a foodie, you will recognize Brian's name because he was he and his brother actually competed against each other on Top Chef, the popular show on Bravo. And Brian is now a pilot, super nice guy, active now around Frederick, and uh, Julie Walker caught up with him. Yeah, thanks to Julie for catching up with Brian, and uh, Chris got some nice photos as well. And he seems like a really cool pilot who's willing to, you know, go the distance and learn a little bit more and do some flying when he's not doing some cooking. Absolutely. All right. So we'll talk to him in a few minutes. First, let's talk about Garmin and cash for your old navigators. Now, we all know the 435 theory series are getting a little long in the tooth. Actually, Collins Dagnito sat down with Phil Straub at uh, NBAA and mm-hmm. Phil reminded us all that they've you know, those came out in the 90s, in the, I think, late 90s, 98. Late 90s. Right, right. Yep. And they stopped selling, Garmin stopped selling the 435-30 model line between 2001 and 2013. So that's about 10 years ago Yeah, where they stopped actively marketing and selling those units. Ian, did you know that they sold 125,000 of these things? Yeah. You know, I did hear that somewhere at one point. It's incredible. I mean, that's that's an amazing amount. I mean, that's basically half the fleet was equipped for one of these at some point, you know. Right. So obviously tons of them out there. Now, if you have one of these, you know parts were getting scarce. We did some reporting on this, I think, at the beginning of last year. It was mm-hmm. like Garmin said, hey, just be aware. Parts are getting really, really scarce on these things. Now they're being, a, they've been, well, we should say they've been active trying to keep them going, right? So Phil yeah. in the video talks about how they even developed a new screen for the 530 just to support the used ones. I thought that was really cool that initially the 530 displays went out of production and then Garmin made their own 5-inch displays for the 530. I guess, yeah. I wonder if the 530, the 5 signified a 5-inch display. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's an interesting point because he did mention that, didn't he, about the size. Yeah, that it was a more yeah. standard 
size of the time. And so it was easier to find suppliers who would make that for them. Obviously, there's a huge expense for that. It's not really practical anymore, given the the hardware, the vintage of the hardware and the software. And obviously, they want to get you into a new unit. And so here, I've buried the lead. The if incentives you have, is yes, what, if you, what you want to tell us about. Yeah, let's make some money. Yeah, you can send them into Garmin. You're supporting your fellow owners and getting a little bit of cash in the process. If you've got, uh, and they have a various uh, a price structure here. It's essentially a trade-in credit towards a new piece of equipment, whether it's a 430, 530, whatever in that series. Yeah, yeah even a, a Garmin 400 or the 420s. And I think the 420 was like a 430, but without, I think it was without the comm, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, something like that, yeah. But but yeah, the, you, the rebate is between $1,000 and $1,750, depending on what you're going to replace it with. But those are pretty healthy incentives to get a trade-in going for an older unit. And like you said, Ian, to keep some of those 125,000 units alive and, and kicking you know, that so many people have. Yeah. So they're going to scavenge these, take the parts, and basically be able to support the other ones for people who need them, especially displays we know are a major concern. So I'll just say, though, and, and people, these are really, I think, appropriate comments to the video. They are worth double this, at least, on the used market. The units. 430, 530s. Yeah, the units themselves. Yeah, because, yeah, Ian, that's right. You are a recent... Piper J300, which doesn't have an electrical system. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in the market. Right. <laughs> right. But, or but you know what? It is rare <laughs> to find a non. It's rare to find a non-WAS Garmin 430 for less than three thousand dollars. You are totally correct. Yeah. And often they're about four grand for the WAS units for yeah. forty five hundred dollars. And you know, of course, then you've got to install it. And I'm not sure yeah. how complicated that is. And and like we're we're saying the incentives are to trade them in because you can get a newer Garmin unit like a 355 or 375, which are really super cool mm -hmm. IFR units. Yeah. The only thing I can think here, and, and Phil made the point that this is obviously all going to be through the dealer network and everything else. So I suppose there could be cases where by working with the dealer mm -hmm. in combination with the Garmin credit and maybe the dealer making a, you know, kind of adjusting the pricing here and there, you're able to get it work as if you would, a, you know, a unit that you're going to go and sell on eBay or some somewhere else. And then there's the whole issue of do you really want to spend your time and effort selling one of these on eBay and having to deal with people and kind of everything that goes into that? Or do you just true. give it back to the shop and make it easy and off you go, right? That's true. And, and we should mention that the units need to be in good working order. Mm -hmm. Now, they don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be workable, which I'm making a guess that if you have a cracked screen, that might not make the cut. But I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure about that. Because they need, they need other components besides just the screens. Yeah, you know, the mighty Hawk that we had, the 172 XP, the screen on that was like, it wasn't cracked, but it wasn't terribly readable. It's one of those where it's like, it was like somebody pushed on it too hard, right? And so you get like this sort of like shade of blue everywhere on it. Yeah. Or like, so like somebody left it out in the sun. So I don't right. know if they, what they would consider that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's good. I'm glad they're being proactive. It'll be interesting to see how many units they actually get back as a result of this. But uh, but it's good to see them trying to support at least some of their legacy products. Yeah, it's very interesting. And like you like to say, moving on, let's move on to some other interesting technology that we could use in our back pocket. This is kind of fun. I was uh, I brought this up to your attention before yeah, the show. You're so excited about this. Yeah. ForeFlight has launched an interactive recap of, of Pilot's 2023 flights, which a lot of people have probably already seen on 
you know, social media on mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram and things like that. Yeah. I think this is really cool. I think it's just a lot of fun to begin with. It'll show you all the routes that you've flown and logged, basically, mm-hmm. and the airports you've visited. It's free. You know, it comes with, with your Garmin. I'm mean, sorry, it comes with your four-flight subscription. And, and I've, I said Garmin because you have uh, – you're a Garmin pilot. Yes. And, and Garmin pilot – also has a feature where if you elect, I believe you can show the airports you visited. Yeah. Well, this is something you just taught me, which is really funny considering that you're a four flight user. But yeah, you have to go into the logbook, accept the flight from the log, you know, the automatic logging. You have to accept the flight and then you can go into reports, which is a different tab in the logbook. And you can then parse it by whatever, by month or a specific date range or year or whatever. And it'll show all the airports in green. I have not, I mean, it also showed tracks of individual flights. I have not yeah. figured out how to make it do what ForeFlight is doing with the recaps. If it, if you can do it, I don't know. Cause it shows, you know, they do, I mean, it's not, the, it's not a track, right. That should, that ForeFlight showing it's like a direct line between A and B basically. Right. Yeah, it is. It's not so like when I usually like when I fly in, I often fly Airport to airport, or at least you know adjacent to an airport, yeah, uh, for safety reasons and things like that. But as I'm looking at my screen here, um, which uh, is pretty impressive here, it shows the flights I've made from uh, Frederick to Oshkosh and Frederick from the Dalles out in Hood River, Oregon, over to Frederick, Alaska flights that I've made uh, across the country. Flights down in Florida, flights to the Bahamas, and it is super cool. This could actually be helpful, Ian, when you're tabbing your results at the end of the year for your logbook for your insurance or for other yeah. uh, things like, you know, Flight Schedule Pro is something that we use at AOPA. This could be really helpful. Yeah, that's true because it, it, it does talk about how many landings you've had, how many hours, that sort of thing. I will say this, it's kind of interesting. I have seen these all over Facebook this year. And I guess, it, you know, when I saw the first couple, I was like, oh, that's neat. And then it hit me that, oh, this is new because you, I was seeing it everywhere and I hadn't seen it in past years. Yeah. I will say some will look different than others. My Cub one is not going to be as impressive because it's going to be all the airports all yeah, local. within, you know, 60 miles. The other thing is that, but your but your overlay line is going to be really thick because yeah, you're going to fly right. that route a bunch of times. Yeah. The other thing with this though is that I have seen somebody put it on. I think they were like a ferry pilot or something, and they made one trip out west. You know, and they went from like California down through kind of the southern route, so down through Arizona, New Mexico, and it's like, you know, the, somebody was like, "Oh, what's the matter? Are you afraid of mountains?" And it was it got into this whole back and forth, and I thought. Oh, great. You know, here it is just another way for people to pick on each other about their flying, right? I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. You know, I'm speaking of mountains and all, I did a, I delivered a little talk about flying across the country in the TriPacer. I did that to the EAA group at Gettysburg Airport. And mm-hmm. folks were really interested in that. But there are definitive routes that you could follow, you know, the interstate highways east yeah. to west. And, you know, um, the I-80 route is real common, I-70. And I-20, when you're going south-south, like you are just mentioning, an I-10. I-10, yeah. You know, basically from yeah. Southern California through El Paso, Texas, all the way yeah. across through Florida. So, um, but yeah, that is, I think it's interesting and fun to share. So, do you want to hear? Yeah, so how do you do it? Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you get to it? In well, it looks like it's pretty simple. In my case, I just went ahead, there's a there's a little a little button, a little bit high, a little highlighter that says Recap 2023 on the main page in 4Flight. And I'm doing this on the 4Flight web. 
on the web interface. Oh, okay. And then it, it produced a little PNG. And the PNG, of course, I downloaded it and I shared it with you. So I have um, 94 flights, 11,978 miles, 181.7 uh, hours in the air. Now, I didn't fly all of those. I was with Dave Hirschman through Alaska. And, you know, a lot of that time, Dave was at the controls for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and other other flights, too. Mm -hmm. um, and 97 landings. So Very nice. I, I'm okay with that. I've got some. I got some good flight hours. And indeed, Ian, uh, this past year I flew more uh, time than I have it really in any time in my life. I flew actually pilot in command about 140 hours. Wow, that's so, fantastic. Good for you. Yeah, that's a good a, year. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's so cool. All right, so go on to four flight and. and I want, actually, okay, quick diversion before we move on. So you're talking about the web version. This is one thing I wish the Garmin Pilot had. I wish I, I wish there was a web planning piece to go with it so that I could go on the desktop and plan. I'm kind of old school that way. And then, you know, it ports over. Do you use that very often? I do sometimes. What I do on the desktop version, Ian, to be quite honest with you, is I will frequently print out a, a, a paper printout. Hmm. Oh, and you're more I, old school than I am even, yeah. You, well, you know what has happened to me before? Uh, the iPad mini has overheated before, and, and or the batteries have died, things like that. Now, I, yeah. I'm, I've got backup now for that. It's, that's usually, that's probably not going to happen. And I've got one of those um, fans that I got from my GoFlight. So that'll keep the iPad mini cool. Cool. But I like looking down and knowing the frequencies. I like looking down and, and real easily seeing, you know, what direction my travel, my track needs to be, things like that. Yeah. It's helpful for fuel burn, but you could do all of this digitally. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm adding one more step that I probably don't need to add. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. And we'll be right back. So balloon lawsuit. Keep it on the Frederick theme. Yes. Balloon lawsuit. So we talked about this, boy, it was maybe a month, six weeks ago now. This is uh, somebody we know used to uh, work at AOPA, Patrick Smith. His family actually has become a whole family affair. They own this balloon business out of uh, the Frederick area, giving rides and um, all sorts of stuff, obviously, that balloon operators do. Uh, they've done it very successfully. They're very safe. They have partnered with wineries and breweries and everything else. And so the neighbors from hell, apparently. Uh -huh. uh, can you say that? They, can you say that on a podcast? Neighbors from hell. I guess you did. Uh, yes, okay. I'm going to. Neighbors from hell. Yeah, <laughs> who have a major NIMBY complex had sued a couple of years ago because they were unhappy that the balloon was flying over their house. This dragged on for two years. We talked about it because it wasn't. It was on its way to trial. So there was a development this week. You found, and actually, as we record this, it was like two days ago. The trial was scheduled to start. Right. So good news. So what happened? The tailwinds over Frederick uh, and its owner, like you said, Patrick Smith. They are in the clear. The judge ruled in favor of the hot air balloon company after the plaintiffs, and this is a couple. Uh, I can't pronounce their their name, so I'm just going to say a local <laughs> okay. couple. Local couple. A local couple basically— Our favorite neighbors, yeah. Their their lawyer left the case, uh, or, or it was dismissed by them. It's unclear, mm. but they had no representation, and they asked for yet another delay. And as you mentioned, this has already been going on for over two years. So the judge on Monday ruled in favor of the hot air balloon company and its owner— and said, that's it, we're done. So uh, what does that mean for everyone else in the United States of America with airspace and ballooning uh, and things like that? And that's why 
we brought it up before because it had national implications. Yeah, because the only thing they did was take off and land from private property, which they had permission for. I mean, they did everything right. There's no zoning against it in the county. Um, they had permission from the landowners. And as we talked about, it's not as much an issue for fixed wing pilots. I mean, it is, but it, but not as often. It's definitely an issue for balloons and, and helicopters. Right. So thankfully, they prevailed. I just feel awful that they had to go through this and spend all this money because, I mean, this was, you know, most is probably the conclusion that was going to happen anyway. I just think, like, what had to happen? Like, how angry do you have to be of a balloon, which doesn't even make that much noise? They're, they're pretty I quiet. Mean, now, they did it. Now, the couple did say, listen, when you're firing up the burners on the balloon, it's kind of yeah. loud and it disturbed our you know, our chi, if you will. Yeah. But I, I can tell you from flying in a hot air balloon, it, it's some of the most peaceful flying you'll ever do. It is some of the quietest flying you'll ever do. Yeah. And you, you can smell the grass. You can, you can smell, you know, smoke from fires. And it's just your senses are aware. It's yeah. such a beautiful way to, to use aviation. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets me because it's like, you know how it is around around here and probably everywhere it's like all these lifted trucks with these massive exhaust systems and these people riding with straight pipes on uh, motorcycles motorcycles they're right, a heck right. of a lot louder right i mean right. yeah i agree so anyway that's all that's good news for everyone and um and now the folks nearby including uh the milkhouse brewery leonore wine cellars etc cetera, etc cetera, that already gave permission for takeoffs and landings from their property nobody has anything to worry about for now and for the rest of the country, yes. uh, the airspace again, has been yes. upheld to be regulated by the FAA and not by a couple in their backyard. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's talk about NASA and the ASRS, the Aviation Safety Reporting System, better known as you know NASA reports, as, as we all kind of call them. Turns out 2023, last year, was a fantastic year for them. And by fantastic, they mean they got a ton of reports, over 100,000 which was a 52% increase over 2020. So I know, you, I suppose the pessimistic view there is like, boy, that means we're screwing up more often, right? But no. Well, um, I think it's good to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it helps other pilots and it helps other, it helps air traffic control. Like, Ian, I know that I've I've filed a NASA report before, mm. an ASRS report before. You want to tell me what it was for? Well, yeah, I felt like I did something. I was questioning my own flying when I was flying from Frederick out to the East Coast, and I was over New Jersey, and the weather was good visibility. I was via, you know, flying VFR, then all of a sudden, I looked left and I looked right, and I, I saw nothing but clouds, and I felt like I needed to turn around and come back to Frederick, mm -hmm. and I was getting flight following, and so all of a sudden, I, I really couldn't see. I was I was almost in um, instrument conditions. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking, well, if someone on the ground was monitoring the airspace and they're monitoring the conditions and they could see at my altitude what might have been happening and or did they see the cloud conditions? Was I you know, too close to the clouds or inside them momentarily or not? I filed an, a NASA safety report. And I said, hey, I was headed towards New, New Jersey and... All of a sudden, it was meteorological conditions. I did a 180, and I used my turn coordinator and standard rate of turn, all my instrument training just to turn around and go back. And I did not want to get flagged for, you know, VFR pilot in, in IFR conditions. Interesting. Yep. Okay. That's it. Okay. That's a good reason. And I think that's a great example, actually, of what these should be used for, which is, you know, a lot of people do it out of self-interest, I think, in that they think, well, boy, I... 
I might have broken a reg there. I better put a, you know, I better file a NASA report because as as you remember, you can file these and you can file them in a arre- you can file them in arrears, but only by what about ten days, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And it essentially avoids the penalty of the of the certificate action in that you know you don't have to serve the thirty day suspension or whatever it happens to be. But I mean, the reason that we do them really should be to educate other pilots and to make these voluntary safety reports to help the system because yes, people do read these, they NASA collates them, they put out alerts to things that where they see kind of consistent issues. Right. It happens a lot with like airports where there's a an unsafe departure transition or something like that. And pilots continually bust it because of the way it's designed. If you put in enough reports, they start to recognize this and, and they can make reports back to the FAA and that sort of thing. I did one as well. I declared an emergency once for some icing conditions that I got into. Right. And uh, I thought, well, I should probably do this just because. But as I was writing it, I thought, boy, really, what I want to write about here is like, don't do what I did. I, I did something stupid, you know? So it's like, it became a little less about covering myself and a little more about sharing some information. And so I think these are all, have you ever gone back and read some of these? I have, in fact. Yeah. I was uh, real curious about that. And I think that it's good reading and it's it's really a good way to learn. You know, I, I do a lot of our ASI videos and I think this is super helpful. Absolutely. And they do the callback newsletter in addition. And that's, the again, where they sort of collate reports and they do flight instructor reports and all sorts of stuff. So file NASA reports, you can do it as often as you want. And yeah, help improve the safety culture. I think it's a great thing. All right. David, finishing out, Cirrus, new airplane, sort of, new model, new generation of the SR series. Yeah, I know. The this, G7s. That's amazing. And how long, I want to put you on the spot, about how long has Cirrus been doing these aircrafts, you know? When did the 22 come out? It was about 2000, 99, 2000, something like that. I agree. I I think the, the SR20 was in uh, right around 2000. Yep. Because I know that I wanted to get one back then, I couldn't couldn't afford it even even then. But yeah, they've been around a, a while. And then you know the thing is, is that the SR twenty two is uh, is such a good step up platform for folks who are trying to get into the SF fifty Vision Jet. Yeah, I think that's a lot of a lot of this. That's right. So that's what it's become, Cirrus. I think taking a page from the, you know, the automakers, they've been, their marketing efforts, really, if you look at it, they've gone much more sort of automotive and taken a lot of cues from the automotive market. And with that idea of keeping people and stepping them up through your line, they know people want the jet. They know a lot of their 22 clients are going to go to the jet and they want to make that transition as easily as possible. And so the 22, the biggest change is it basically looks like the jet inside. It's the avionics, Ian. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the avionics inside. Well, an optional four-blade propeller on the exterior mm-hmm. and an infrared video component under the left wing for additional situational awareness. But as we produce this podcast, this will be news to a lot of people mm-hmm. because Cirrus is introducing this on uh, January 11th. Yep. Ian, I think it's a great step up. It's going to show potential owners they're, they're going to be so familiar with the mock-up of a, of a Vision Jet because they're going to have the, the exact same cockpit in their SR-22 G7 model. Yep. The switch positions, the orientation will be almost identical. The two Garmin touchscreen controllers on the center pedestal, yeah. uh, if you will, will allow pilots to 
basically alter the primary and multifunction displays, which are also in a slightly different orientation now than they were on the previous model, the G6 and model. the G6, right. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you look at the panel, and it's immediately obvious. So it used to be that traditional symmetrical, you know, eyebrow sort of windscreen. Now it's that cut out for the screens, just right. like the jet looks. And so you get a little more visibility out of the left and right sides, which is actually nice. And Dave Hirschman talks about that. He's flown it. Yep. And exactly right. Those touchscreen controllers, it used to be buttons in that center console um, to be able to control the screens. And now they're multi-touchscreen controllers. Right. I think they even, little stuff, because they're always working on those creature comforts. The seatbelts are like automotive style in the front Nice. Now. Yeah, because the, the AmSafe seatbelts were a little bit th- they're, they're nice, actually. Yeah. Uh, but um, the well, the previous seatbelts were, uh, they kind of rub people the wrong way, you might say. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, little, I think little stuff like that. But, yeah, from, uh, but the, and all the news here, like you said, is, is basically the panel. Sears owners are, they're always excited about new generations that come out. And it's been a while since the G6 came out, actually, I think. That's a good point. Yeah. Before we move on, we got to talk about the price, Ian. And it's my understanding this is about a $1.3 million aircraft. Wow. For a, for a single engine. Wow. With a parachute. Yeah. Brand new. But Ian, I asked you to do some research earlier before we you know got live on the air. How much was an original... Vision Jet when it was getting ready to come out and and you know some of the earlier models uh, yeah, we were talking about announced. yeah uh huh do you remember what that price was yeah okay so let me go back even farther to the Eclipse right because now you're talking about a twin jet okay that was under a million that was like eight hundred or eight hundred fifty thousand or something like that of course that was a long time ago I mean that was like twenty years ago a little less. So the first Vision Jet, I think, what did we find? It was like 1.55 or something like that, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. We're pushing the same number, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. And then and you did a quick search. You were thinking about trading your J3 in real quick for a... For the latest Vision Jet, what did you yeah. find those were selling for you? I'm looking for a little more range, you know. Yeah, a few more uh, passengers. A little bit. I like the, the parachute aspect. I mean, not surprisingly, given... The wait list on those, the used, I think, are probably going for a premium over new. So there was one I saw listed, I think it was, a, what, a 2020? Uh-huh. So a couple years old, 200 hours on it, $3 bucks. Wow. But you can get your hands on it instead of being on a wait list. You can get it today. Exactly. That is amazing, which just means there's a lot of demand for for this Vision Jet. Yep. And there's a lot of demand for stepping up in the Cirrus line from the SR20 to the 22 to the Vision Jet, and now it's going to be just so much more alike that I think it'll be an even an easier step up from the yep. from the single engine to the to the single engine jet. Yep, absolutely. All right, David. So if his restaurants are successful enough, who knows? Maybe Brian is a future SF50 customer. He's a strong Cessna 172 <laughs> pilot right now. So, but yeah, yeah, that's all right. Now he's got a little ways to go. Yeah, but loving the Cessna using. Aviation starting to for what we all love to do, which is go and eat places. And uh, so we'll hear more about that. My name is Brian Voltaggio. I'm a chef and restaurant owner. I'm also a private pilot. I live in Frederick, Maryland, and uh, we're here at Frederick Airport. Thanks for joining us. I wanted to start by asking, how did you break into becoming a chef? 
So I started cooking when I was 14 years old at a local hotel here. It was a Holiday Inn. And it, what, how it started was I started actually as a busboy before I became a cook. And I asked the chef, if I take a vocational class, you know, on cooking, will you let me cook? And he said, yes. So that's where I got my first shot at 15, 16 years old, all the way through high school I was cooking. You know, it was my introductory, you know, sort of crash course into the kitchen. But then after that, I ended up enrolling into Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and I went to school for a professional chef. And how did that segue into the show with your brother? Yeah, so back um, in 2008, when I opened my first restaurant in Frederick, Maryland called Volt, I actually got a phone call from Bravo and it's Magical Elves. That was a production company. They said, hey, do you want to come on and kick your brother's butt on television? And so he was already privy to it. He had already gotten a phone call. Um, I said yes. It was seven months into opening my first restaurant. So I was a little nervous leaving, but I went. And, you know, I've done a lot of TV since then. Was it hard to do? Uh, it was very hard to do because I was gone for six weeks away from my family. I just, my son was 18 months old. I just left a brand new restaurant. We're only seven months into the opening of the first restaurant I'd ever opened on my own. But it was also during 2008. So there's an economic downturn. So I thought to myself, hey, if I get on television, if I go far in this competition, because I had known Top Chef and this is the sixth season, it might pay off and actually help fill the seats. So I did it. I got to the finale. I didn't win, but hey, it, it definitely helped the restaurant. Did it help the restaurant? And how much do you think? Yeah, I mean, it certainly helped the restaurant. I'll never forget the influx of, of customers just coming in just to check out the restaurant. And, you know, obviously because I was contestant on Top Chef. So that definitely really helped. But also, fortunately, by the time I got done filming and it aired, you know, the economic shift started happening and people started going out again more. So it was, I guess, the perfect storm. I'll never forget, like, a, a quick story. I was in Urbana, which is near Frederick, and, you know, where I lived, I was getting gas at a gas station, and a guy came up to me and said, hey, will you sign this for me? I'm like, what are you talking about? It was his gas receipt. And I was like, come on, dude. I'm like, I, I, I'm not paying for your gas. So I was, you know, very confused. He's like, no, I just want your autograph. You're the guy that's on the front of that newspaper over there. And so it was the first introductory to kind of, like, that part of being on television and stuff that I'm still yet not comfortable with, but hey, I still go with it. You know, it's it's fun. So when did the flying bug bite or did you always have it? You know, here I, I grew up in Frederick, Maryland, so I'm, I'm from this area. I took my first Discovery flight. My dad arranged it here at Frederick Airport and I'll never forget that. And I think at that point forward, I knew I always wanted to fly. Life, you know, just took over. I was a cook, buried in a kitchen for a long time. I went, I, I lived in New York City for like seven and a half years. So there wasn't a convenient spot to, to go train there, nor did I have the money. Um, as a young cook in New York, you don't have a lot of cash. And so, you know, 20 years later or 30 years later, moving back, you know, to this area, well, I've been in this area, but, but, you know, fast forward 20 or 30 years later, I decided it was time. And, you know, I wanted to, I took a discovery flight again. I got hooked and, you know, I was given the controls for a moment. And I was like, you know what? I want to do this. I want to pursue it. And it's something I've always wanted to do. And I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. Why? Why? You're creative with cooking. So what part of flying excites you? You know, I work with my hands. So, you know, I'm into like, you know, organized checklists and things like that. Just like my brain processes things that way. And so... It was a challenge I've always wanted to take on since I was a kid. And I, and I think that, you know, for me, it was also just to, to get myself to destinations, you know, for food, you know, where, where I might not be able to, to reach otherwise, you know, or it might take me a lot longer to get there by car. You know, now it's a little bit more convenient for me to fly down to, you know, Southern Virginia, North Carolina, you know, up to, to Western Pennsylvania and check out cool food destinations that I can do in a day or so. What does your family think about you flying? 
My family is very supportive of me flying. Actually, two of my three children have been up with me, you know, with an instructor. I haven't taken them up by myself yet. My mom's been in with me, you know, on a, on a cross country before, which is cool. My wife won't get in the plane with me yet. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> she tells me that she's scared of what the last things that might come out of her mouth would be. And I'm like, it's a lot safer than you think. So I'm trying to warm her up to the idea and, you know, I'll get her out here one day. We'll, we'll take a loop around the pattern. Uh, my brother, he loves the fact that I've been doing this. And um, I, I jokingly tell him, I was like, one day when you get your private jet, I'll, I'll be your pilot for you. So that is an interesting question. Who is the more competitive and who is the more successful or recognizable, Michael or you? You know, I would say that Michael spent, or in recent times for sure, a lot more time like on Food Network. And so, you know, people definitely recognize him. You know, when we're together as a group, if we're walking, you know, public, I mean, obviously people recognize us as Voltaggio Brothers. But, you know, I, we, we both were partners in, in restaurants together. So I, I think we equally share successes we've, that we've, you know, had with our restaurants. You know, as far as com competition's concerns, you know, I think we're both very competitive. We've been competitive since we were kids. But we don't compete against each other anymore. You know what I mean? Those, those times have passed because now we work together. We certainly will take on anybody you know, as a group, as a team, and go against somebody else, um, you know, because we still love to compete. And we do so because it keeps us on our toes, you know, because there's nothing like going into a, a competition environment and just focusing on food and beating the clock and really just creating dishes on the fly, you know. And that's something that we both love to do and we're very passionate about. What were the challenges when you were learning to fly? The biggest challenges for learning to fly with me was my schedule, number one, you know, because I have a very busy schedule. So keeping it on track, I was here at seven in the morning before the flight center would open because luckily I had an instructor who was amazing and he would he would do it early. And I, we started I started in November. So I went through the winter time. And so I was pretty much on grounds crew, too, because what I had to do is come out and spray the plane down every morning with glycol and like, you know, get everything ready. Normally that stuff would be done on the flight line already by the crew. And so, you know, that, that was probably it, just you know, the hours I had to keep in order to fit it all in. Um, and the studying, too, I mean, because I took it very seriously. And so there's a lot of late nights studying for tests and just keeping up with, you know, everything that I needed for my written. Because I didn't want to just, just pass. I wanted to excel at this. I wanted to make sure that I was going to be a safe pilot, proficient pilot. And I wanted to make sure that, that I learned as much as I could. I don't do anything halfway. How did it feel to solo? My first solo, I, I don't really remember the hours that I had, but I'll never forget, it was kind of a surprise. Like, he knew I was going to be ready for solo soon. My instructor told me it was going to happen. I showed up one day, and he told me today was a day. And I didn't really, I wasn't quite prepared for that. You know, we went out, we actually did a couple loops first, you know, because he wanted to see me in the pattern before I did it. And then um, I came back, and he said, all right, I'm getting out. And that was it. And he sent me on my way. You know, it was an amazing feeling. I'll never forget because I know the, the, the view, like every, because we take off a two, three, a lot around here. And so just looking in the right seat and seeing Frederick from a different perspective without somebody blocking it, just completely changed everything for me. At that point, I knew that I was there by myself. I'd accomplished something pretty amazing. And I was certainly proud. A little bit nervous, I have to say. I mean, it did happen. You know, you get, get a little, you know, butterflies in your stomach a little bit. I made that left turn, got into it. I, everything went really well. My first landing was, was great. My second one, not so good, but I'll take it. What's your favorite airport restaurant? Have you done the $100 hamburger thing? You know, I have not really done the $100 hamburger thing yet. So I, I am out there searching for restaurants, and I will start to do it a little bit more. Every time I've taken a flight, I've been really up against the clock on time. So I haven't had time to lay over and, like, you know, have lunch and, you know, really explore that side of, of flying. But that's why I'm doing this. So the whole reason why I'm doing this is to 
is to, you know, build time towards me planning trips and planning it around food. And so my summer is gonna be full of that. And that's what I plan to do this summer. Because as I'm working towards instrument, I have to get a lot of cross country time in. And so I'm gonna use that to go check out some pretty cool food sites. What are you looking for when you're looking for food places? You know, for me, I, it's just either going out and exploring restaurants that I might be able to, you know, it might take me a little bit longer to drive to. Like, I've never been to Blackberry Farm down in Tennessee, you know, so to be able to fly down there and, you know, experience that restaurant and be able to fly over that, you know, beautiful part of the country and, you know, experience it, I think it's going to be, you know, worth it. You know, even like flying down to South Carolina and North Carolina and going to check out some barbecue spots. You know, I did a barbecue tour with William Sonoma back, oh, I don't know, 2011. And, you know, there's there's a lot of spots I didn't even get to, to hit down south. I'd love to go do, you know, that part of it again. So, you know, so for me, you know, connecting food and aviation, I think is going to be very easy. So I look forward to doing it. For those who don't know, what is your food style and what current restaurants do you now own? So um, I guess my food style, I, I try to sum it up in a couple words. I never can. I, I cook progressive American, you know, food or, and cuisine. I utilize ingredients from my region. You know, right now I'm really cooking, you know, Thatcher Rye here in Frederick, Maryland with ingredients from Chesapeake Watershed. But we also have expanded our portfolio of restaurants. My brother and I are partners with MGM. We have a restaurant called Voltaggio Brothers Steakhouse in National Harbor. We also have a really brand new restaurant with them called Retro by Voltaggio in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay. This is an 80s and 90s throwback. So these are dishes that we grew up with, dishes that we cooked at a very young age. Things like chicken pot pie, you know, put into these little croquettes so you can eat one at a time. Uh, lobster thermidor and Caesar salad. You know, Caesar salad was, you know, actually invented in, in Mexico, not in Italy, as people, you know, you know, really, you know, associate the Caesar salad with. So what we do is we serve it with a bag of like churros made with Parmesan cheese, these really savory churros. So it's a lot of fun. We even have guests that come in and they're like, you know, dressed up in like 80s, like colors, like all neon and stuff. They really love the restaurant. We also open up a restaurant called Volcania. It's in Mammoth Mountain, California. What's your favorite snack when you fly? My favorite snack while I'm flying? Uh, I, I stick it to like, you know, peanuts and like, you know, cashews and almonds and like maybe a little sandwich. I don't pack a whole lot when I'm flying. It's just more for convenience, stuff that I can I can eat. But I've jokingly said that I'm gonna start taking out people with me, like friends and family, and I'm gonna pack them like a picnic and you know, serve it, you know, in flight. So I need to work on that right now. You know, it's because I'm now starting to fly people, you know, friends and family with me. And that's the first thing they always ask, hey, where's my in-flight meal? So I feel responsible now to bring that to the to the table. How do we get more people involved in aviation? So to get more people involved in aviation, I mean, I think that if, if anyone has just any, any desire at all to, to even try it out, just realize that it might be intimidating at first, but go take that discovery flight, go out there for the first time and, you know, get with a school. And, and I'm telling you that the first time that you're able to take control of a plane just for a moment, even if it's only a moment in discovery flight, you will be hooked. Any, anyone or desire to learn, just go out there. It's available to you. And it's great to see that more people are, are doing this. Actually, I've just introduced four friends in aviation now who are flying here right now in Frederick. So just, I keep just spreading the word. You know, the more of us that are out there, you know, I, I think the more opportunities and, and freedom of flight are gonna be available to more people. You know, I'm still waiting for the Food Network show. They have diners 
Diners, drive-ins, and drive-ins dives. and dives. Yeah. I'm waiting. I'm still waiting for airport restaurants. You know, hundred dollar hamburger and pieces of pie. I think people would love that. I guess we need to do that ourselves, and maybe we can get AOPA to help sponsor us and fly around and and and, and dine and fly. <laughs> don't you think? I mean, in all seriousness, don't you think people would watch that? I think that would be a really interesting show. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course, especially if you're going to put together a really fun trip and that's going to include stuff like, I don't know, the best barbecue on the East Coast or place to get great seafood out west or, you know, beef in the center of the country. You know, I think that that would be really awesome. You know, pizzas up in Chicago. Yeah. Heck yeah, man. Why not? We should do an annual food issue. (laughs) Maybe we will. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right, David. I'm all about that. Let's. I think it's time for lunch. So that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.